Nine Boys Golf Show. All about golf, from putting to driving, from hooks to whatever. Now, here's your host of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show, Rich Styles. Have a great day. Uh, hope you have a great day at golf. The Back Nine Boys Golf Show is brought to you by Mizuno Golf Reach Beyond, by Club Car, the leader in sport, utility, and personal vehicles, by RSM, proud sponsor of the RSM Classic, giving back to our community. By Bridgestone Golf, get fitted for your Tour B ball today. And by the club at Seapong. Today we're going to look at the other side of the proposed merger between the PGA Tour, LIB, and the DP World Tour. When I was over in Scotland uh, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to talk with a couple folks over there. And one of them was a student by the name of Colum who was excited about it. We'll hear his interview coming up in just a couple of minutes. Then we'll talk with Club Car's Mark Raquel about their crew vehicle, providing the golf carts for each of the Ryder Cup teams. That's kind of cool. And other new innovations that are coming out from Club Car when we talk with Mark. And then finally, we'll talk with former golf broadcaster and a frequent guest here, Steve Melnick, about the proposed agreement with the PGA Tour, Live and DP, and the addition of the PIF that they're now talking about in the mix, and a little bit about how maybe Rory was mistreated during all of this. But first up is my interview with Callum, who was at the Crail Golfing Society in Crail, Scotland. And uh, we talked about how he feels about the proposed agreement between PGA Tour, Liv, and his favorite, the DP World Tour. Well, I've been very excited to hear it because for a good few years now, I think the DP World Tour especially has lost their place in professional golf. As many people say, I think they are practically a feeder tour for the PGA, which is sad because obviously it's the tour that I feel uh, largest affinity to. But with the news that I heard yesterday as a young golfer, I, I think it, I find it quite exciting because for a long time, I think things have been stagnant in professional golf. And it's always exciting, I think, to see a bit of change. And even if in the long run we decide that change wasn't perfect, you can always go back and fix it. And I think people like Jay Monaghan especially actually made dug themselves a very large hole when the new Live Tour was announced a couple of years ago now. So I'm very interested to see how the next next few months and years go. And I think it could encourage a lot more people into watching and playing golf by mixing it up at the end of the day. I'm going to be surprised. I was surprised by the news. Um, being here in Scotland, hearing the news that was apparently made in London yesterday without a lot of people knowing, including some of the PGA Tour members or many of the PGA Tour members. But I also find it interesting that the Saudis are chairman of this new entity, Monaghan is the CEO. Um, no word of Norman, That's which, which I, I think he's gone. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how the PGA Tour um, union takes to what has happened. It could be a very, very interesting time to come. As you said, the biggest surprise I see is no more Greg Norman. And I think very soon it'll be no more Jay Monaghan. I, I cannot see how you can have a future in a business that's half of what you've been arguing against for years and years. And that's why I think he might have got close to ending his time here at the, at the PGA, but, or whatever the new league will be called. Who knows what it'll be called? I mean, it could be called World Tour, it could be called uh, a combination of all the letters, who knows? Exactly. But the other thing that I find interesting is that we've not heard any comments yet from Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy, who have been very strong against what Liv has done and very strong to their loyalty to the PGA Tour. 
I think Tiger Woods is probably of less importance, as sadly, I, I don't think we'll see him playing events other than major championships from now on. If that. If Yeah, if that. Maybe the odd Open, the odd Masters. Uh, so he won't actually be involved with new tours as much, I don't think. And Rory is in a very, very, very difficult position now, isn't he? Uh, he's obviously still... He's still in the top five in the world. He's still, he's still one of the world-leading golfers. Um, but people are starting to doubt his abilities now, thinking he's not focusing on his golf enough. So I'll, if I was him, I'd stop trying to treat a game of golf as politics and focus on my game. But he's he's very much involved now in in the politics of golf. And it's unfortunate that politics, which uh, is a controversial subject anyway, has gotten into the game of golf over the last two years. It's taken this game of integrity and changed it. And it looks like that the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, in my opinion, have reversed their decision as far as being so much against live golf. Yes. Uh, so I, I was just saying to some of the uh, other pros in the shop there that if I was Jay Monaghan, I would have been a lot more diplomatic when the new tour came out and thought long and hard about whether you uh, dismiss them and uh, the, the one that I couldn't believe was the banning the words about banning players from returning to the PGA Tour that's not how any other competitive markets work in our you know if you want customers to come back you offer them a better deal you know if you're changing I don't know your power or your electricity supply you don't say well you've left now we're refusing to ever let you come back to to right. give us money right so it just didn't did not make a tiny bit of sense to me uh, but I'm just excited to see how the next couple of years will go for professional golf you may be some of the few that are excited about it I think a lot of people in the U.S. are not excited about it I think that could I could even be a cultural difference between us uh, and the US because um, there's definitely a lot less talk about in Britain anyway the origins of where the money backing this league has come from um, and I don't know whether that is a cultural difference uh, on on how we feel about about where that money is is coming from uh, you can probably read into that uh, what what you, what you choose um, but I think maybe especially as a young golfer as well I'm just excited to see some change um, and yeah that's that's what I'm looking forward to I guess the bottom line is money talks indeed it does it certainly does uh, and it always will for better or for worse as well Andrew Novak Corn Ferry Tour and you're listening to the Back Nine Boys Golf Show and welcome back I'm Rich Stiles we appreciate you taking your Saturday morning with us and we also had an opportunity while we were over in Scotland at the Crail Golfing Society to talk to the general manager. A Crail Golfing Society has two golf courses. One, Tom Morris Senior designed way back when, and the other one was just uh, kind of refreshed by Gil Hands a few years ago. And it is the seventh oldest club in the world. And I had a chance to sit down for a few minutes with David Ray, the general manager of the Crail Golfing Society, and here's my interview with David. Well, Crail was formed on the 23rd of February, 1786, in the Golf Hotel in the village of Crail, formed by 11 gentlemen who were fond of the diversion of golf. That's how it's written in the, the first page of the first constitution, constitution. They first started playing their golf at a very small strip of land next to the village, a place called Sawhope Links. And, uh, but by the time the got a percha ball came about, 
that little strip of ground wasn't considered big enough. It was really only fit for six holes, so they squeezed nine holes into it. Mm. So they started playing the golf out here on a strip of ground called Balcomi, um, because it was being then farmed by one of the members, a guy called Richard Todd. So from about 1850, uh, they've been playing the golf out here at Balcomi, which is a spectacular piece of lynx land right next to the sea. And tell me a little bit more about what's happened since then. I know you've been challenged by all the renovations that are going on as far as other golf courses, but you won't do that here. No, you can imagine from about 1850 as golf technology has come along and people are hitting the ball further. Naturally, the instinct is to lengthen golf courses, buy more land, stretch it. Um, what's really nice about Crail and its history and the history of generations of club members and golfers here, they've resisted that urge, that temptation to fiddle about with their golf course. And they've had a policy over the centuries, they've had a policy uh, of non-intervention. Um, they've essentially said, we like it the way it is. Why, why, why should we change it? Now, to be fair to them, when the, in the 1990s they got the chance to buy the neighbouring farm, they did indeed buy the neighbouring farm and built another golf course, and, uh, which is a thousand yards longer. It's a genuine, you know, championship standard golf course. And if you want to be tested by the best um, uh, golfing conditions, uh, you can go and play your golf on Craighead, which many members do and many members enjoy. But that's where the championships are held. Um, next year we'll have the final qualifier for the AIG Women's Open, hmm. um, which will be when it's held at St Andrews. So the final qualifier will be over Craighead. But Balcomi is largely untouched from the piece of ground that old Tom first walked over wow. in 1895. And that there's a real charm to that. And you can tell, as you're walking around the course you can tell the firmness of the turf under your feet. You can see the real subtleties of the, the formations of the land. You can see where the wind has blown the dunes and formed the undulations. Um, and you've got to bear in mind that when old Tom and John Guthrie Gay, the greenkeeper, when they were forming the golf course officially in 1895, they were doing so with a, a shovel and a wheelbarrow. And so there's a limit to how much... Um, soil you can move when you're shoveling it yourself in a wheelbarrow right that's why all the swales and the humps and hollows are very very subtle so how would you recommend someone who hasn't played how would you recommend for them to play the course it's be sorry you're gonna to have to be specific you just mean in terms of um, booking around or do you mean if your golfing experience when you're playing it Golfing experience when you're playing it. Ah, right. Well, g g the, the previous pro, pro Graham Lenny, had a, had a great tip, his great golfing tip when you're playing the links of Balcomi is keep your putts low to the ground. Uh, <laughs> the wind is the predominant factor. The wind is a predominant feature on Balcomi. Uh, I had a great experience many, many years ago with a scratch competition over Balcomi. And uh, one of the great junior junior golfers here was playing off a scratch and he, he had a golf scholarship in America so he came, he'd come across with a, a very good friend from, from America uh, a very talented young American golfer who was playing off of scratch or better and um, he came in with a score of 89 and um, I said oh, that's very interesting when was the last time you didn't break 80 
And this young man who was in his 20s said, oh, probably when I was 14 years old. Mm. I says, and that's very interesting. When was the last time you played a course that was under 6,000 yards long? And he said, what, you, you mean to say that Balcomi's under 6,000 yards? He had to look at the scorecard. He didn't believe how short the course was. But the day, that, that the, the day he played, it was blowing about 22 miles an hour, and he really struggled to control the ball in that wind. So your high ball flight, you know, your... Um, you know, pitching a seven iron 150 yards at the centre of the green quite often is not the way to play the course here and quite often it's far better to punch a little shot, let it run and keep the ball underneath the wind and if you play with any of the locals in a wind you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about Yeah, usually the locals give you a lot of advice, not necessarily correct as far as how to play a golf course you also told us at lunch about a story about Gary Player when he played the course. Could you share that with us? Yeah, Gary, Gary Player was, was extremely charming and um, uh, he was very gracious and he spent a lot of time with people who, who, who wanted to meet him. So it was, it was a great visit. And the 15th, um, and I've got his card somewhere actually, he, he shot a 71, um, a scratch 71, first time he'd ever played the course. But he drove the 15th green on Balcomi. And he had a 15-foot putt for an eagle. Now, it's a short par four, but nonetheless, it's tricky. You've got to right. get the ball in the right place. And he had manufactured a fade to draw it to, to make sure it was on the green. And he stopped before putting out, and he, he said, Hey, boys, he says, I once met Marilyn Monroe. And uh, we wondered what was coming next. <laughs> and he said, Oh, she was, she was at a tournament, and she was standing next to me at the putting green. And I said, Hey, Marilyn, if I, if I sink this putt, would you give me a kiss? You know what she said, boys? We said, no. She says, all right, Gary, it's a gimme. <laughs> um, how long have you been here as far as um, the manager or in your employment here at Crail? I've been here 18 years, um, which is part of the culture of the club. Um, the pro who's recently retired was here for 38 years. The um, head greenkeeper's been here for 32 years. Um, the club um, doesn't change quickly, which is nice. Um, it holds on to its traditions. And yet, it's still a club perfectly fit for the 21st century. It's a nice, relaxed club. I'm delighted to say we don't have a dress code. If you wished to play golf in your jeans and a colourless T-shirt, you can choose to do so. Hmm. Now, few, if any, ever do right, that. Right. But it's all about behaviours rather than how you dress. Similarly, in the club, clubhouse itself, in the lounge, um, you're perfectly welcome to bring your family. We've got high chairs for, for infants, and um, quite often we'll have several generations sitting around the tables eating and drinking together, and, and that's the way the members like it. Um, you know, we've got members who members at clubs like Cypress Point and um, Augusta National, and if they wish that style, they'll get that at that club. Um, they come here for a completely different experience and, and that's completely accepted and that's why that's how everybody likes it. You also told a story at lunch which I found fascinating where you talked about someone could hit somebody at the bar, get into a fight and be okay to stay in the club but if they cheated on a golf cart they could be let out of the club. You put it euphemistically when you say let out um, yes, thrown out ignominiously. <laughs> it's, it's probably. Better I was trying to be nice with my yes, yes. No, again, as I say, it's all about behaviours, isn't it? When the first 
set of members sat down, you know, in, in nearly 250 years ago and drew up rules of admission and rules of behaviour. Um, they understood at the time that no, not everybody is a saint, especially when drink has been taken. And, and so long as you can shake hands in the morning with a clean and sober head and make up um, and acknowledge your mistakes, then we can all move on. However, um, over the centuries, it's been universally acknowledged that um, if you cheat at golf, then you're not an honourable gentleman. And that culture persists. And Creole's not unusual in that. That is very much a, a Scottish, if not British culture, whereby, um, yes, I've had plenty of members who have got into slight scraps and slight alter altercations, um, uh, either on the golf course or in the, more usually in the bar and at a function. Um, so long as they shake hands and, you know, look each other in the eye and apologise the next day, then all is well. Um, but as I say, if you mark down a four when it should be a five, then how can you be trusted? And that's the way they look at it. Interesting. Uh, kind of some different rules over there, but Crail is the seventh oldest club in the world. Uh, and uh, David said uh, only a few times has that happened where they've actually had to uh, kick somebody out or ask them to leave. Uh, a great experience if you've ever gone or if you are going, uh, make that one of your stops. We're going to be back with our interview with Steve Melnick, former broadcaster and also U.S. and Open amateur champ. We'll be right back with him after this on the Back Nine Boys Golf Podcast. Hi, this is Zach Johnson from the PGA Tour, and you're listening to the Back Nine Boys Golf Show. And welcome back. I'm Rich Stiles. Glad you're with us. Our next guest has been a golf broadcaster and a former U.S. and Open amateur champ, plus a University of Florida alumni. And I'm just uh, pleased to welcome back Steve Melnick. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Rich, good morning. Always a pleasure to be with you. Again, I see you on the range. You're practicing. You're always trying to improve your game. Um, I mean, you still got it. Rich. Pride goeth before the fall. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am uh, I'm trying to outrace Father Time, but he's beating me at every turn, okay? I know, I know. It just uh, it gets more frustrating uh, kind of each time that, uh, that I play. It's like, man, I used to be able to get to here. I used to be able to hit it over there where I wanted to. Yeah, I'll, I'll share with you a very quick, funny story. We're at the Masters this year and having lunch, and Tom Watson and his group were at the next table. And after we got through, we got to chatting with one another. I've known Tom since amateur and college days. So we, we used to room together on tour years ago. And I said, how's your golf game? I, he said, that's awful. He said, about yours? I said, I suck. I can't hit it to work. <laughs> he said, get this. I took my launch monitor out to the range uh, last week. I make three swings all at 98, 98, 98. I said, I'm really going really to rip this next one. He ripped it. And he looked down there and went, 98.5. So, uh, <laughs> that's the story I can relate to. Yeah, me too, unfortunately. All right, well, let's, uh, let's kind of get right to it. What are your thoughts on the proposed, and I say proposed in a capital letter, uh, of the agreement between the PGA Tour, Live Tour, and the PIF? Well, I've been asked this before, and they basically have a framework around which to hammer out an agreement. And to the devil is in the details here. Um, each side, it, many contract uh, discussions and whatnot, want their uh, 
own wording in there and uh, how they want to approach this thing. Uh, and Jimmy Dunn and Ed Hurley, you've got two good people who uh, have been down this road before. Ed's an attorney. Jimmy's a deal maker, uh, investment banker. Um, I, I think from what I have been told and know kind of from folks who uh, are involved in this, uh, the legal fees were what I would call a no-win deal. I mean, the, the Saudis could outweigh them and they yep. could outlook and basically drain the well dry. And so I think with that in mind and the fact that uh, they got to figure out a way to move forward with this, that's how they got where they did. So uh, is it a perfect uh, marriage? No, you can argue from a number of places. But it's better for the game of golf that you, you get rid of these two fighting entities and move forward on, on a united front. Yeah, but a lot of folks, uh, all the stories that you see, um, I just kind of think that Monaghan just did an about-face. And, uh, you know, I know the legal fees were mounting up, and they'd rather pay the players than you know, pay the lawyers. Uh, but right. it just seemed like it was a complete about-face. Last year it was no way, and this year we found a way. Well, I think they recognize, as I said, the financial situation. And Jimmy Dunn uh, flew over to London and uh, met with the with the Saudis, and in hopes of finding a way to uh, mitigate these ongoing costs. And what would it take to um, have you guys back off? You know, he said, and correctly so, in the testimony this week, they could keep poaching players. And uh, you know, you can't out outbid them uh, no, right. let's face it uh money really it doesn't mean anything to them uh they have an unlimited source so uh you know you had to sort of hold your nose and go go make a deal it happens plenty of times in, in real life and in, in the corporate world and uh this is not a merger so much as they're going to create a new co-rich into which the pif will be an investor uh they'll have a board seat uh but if what i hear and read is correct the tour will be the operating entity, and uh, we'll have the uh, the uh, majority share of this NUCO. Well, how do you think uh, getting involved with the Department of Justice, do you think the DOJ is going to alter the agreement? Do you think it'll take a while to finally maybe figure out an agreement, or do you think they will not approve it? Honestly, I don't think the DOJ's got anything to do with this, I and mean, it's you have corporate mergers all the time. You have right. foreign investors all the time. I mean, this was a grandstanding show. This was a what I call a peacock event. Everybody was strutting around and preening there um, on the Senate floor the other day. And uh, I, I questioned myself, why, why did it get here in the first place? Yeah, great point. Uh, yeah, so, uh, th- and Ron Johnson pointed it out well. I, I listened to the... Uh, committee hearings, as I'm sure you did, and he said, you know, this is just a, a contract they were working out. Uh, it's an investment from uh, one group to another. So, uh, again, Congress sticks its head in where it doesn't need to go. Yeah, well, that's not the first time that's happened. Um, I, do, I do find it interesting, though, that there is a proposed agreement, but no actual plan of how it's going to work. That's true. As I said, the devil's in the details. They, they did it to stop the litigation, okay? They, they agreed not to uh, move forward, so that stopped the, the spigot, the bleeding, if you will, from the tour's end. 
And uh, now they've got to sit down, and they, they need to do it pretty quickly and work out the details of this. I've seen some drafts, as I'm sure you have, about what they'd like in the contract. Right. Again, uh, we've got a lot of negotiation to go before there's a there's a finished deal and a new co in place. And I've seen interviews. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, some of the players, uh, Chesson Hatley was one of the ones that I, I think I first saw. Was I'd like to be compensated for staying with the PGA Tour. Yeah, that, that's that was the first thing that, that came to mind for me, and even Jimmy Dunn talked about it at length when he first met with the Saudis. Uh, how, how do you recognize their loyalty to the tour? And right. it could be as a stakeholder in NUCO, where they would get shares or or calls or options on uh, the value of NUCO. And um, I, I'm in hopes that they will be fair and treat these guys fairly for those who stay loyal to the tour. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. It, it, it is going to be interesting, though, to see how, and I know we've had the, the one instance with the U.S. Open and with the Masters, to see how the PGA Tour players and live players are going to be kind of reacting with each other uh, when they begin playing together again. Yeah, you know, I see both sides of it. If I'm a 40-year-old player on tour, the best years are both. All from money, I'm thinking about Charles Howell. Would I take the money? I would do it for my family. I would do it for my financial security. Right, if right. I were a kid, would I do it? No, probably not. But circumstances different. You can't sit in judgment. It's what I don't see players and what they've done. Um, it, they probably had to hold their nose and accept this. Because for some, this is life changing. Harold Varner said it best. This is life changing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally understand. And the, and the way the tour works, I mean, a lot of people don't understand this. You know it better than anybody. There's no guarantee when you see it up. Right. Uh, the tour finally is something I've been advocating for years that, that players need to be paid for missing the cut. They're part of the entertainment value of a, of a tournament. Yeah. And I always, for years, you know, they didn't get paid. They were out, you know, five or $6,000 a week. Well, Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I remember talking to Paul Tesori one time, <clears throat> and he said that when Webb went over to the Open and missed the cut, uh, that it would cost him about forty thousand dollars, and he gets yeah, none they, of that back. Uh, I, I never, I, was, I played two British Opens as an amateur. I was exempt, and I had some help to corporate folks to get over there. And one was a Walker Cup trip. Uh, I played. But without that, I would have gone. But it, to your point, uh, back then there was no money. Right. One in the British Open. And uh, again, it was a lot of money out of pocket for, for not a lot of upside. That's yeah. To look at it. But, but you've got to be realistic. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, I also remember having a conversation with Billy Casper. I had about an hour with him in a friend's library up in North Carolina. And uh, Billy said that he went over to the British Open one time, made $600, didn't even pay for his expenses to go over there, and he said, I, I don't think I went over again. Yeah, I mean, Sam Snead was the same way. Uh, I think he went once. That was it. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, the R&As uh, sort of come out of the dark ages 
so uh, that's good. The purses are out there, but yeah, it's a completely different way of looking at it now versus say 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I totally agree. Do you think that uh, Jay is going to Monahan is who I'm talking about? Will survive this situation because some of the players are obviously for what's about to happen and many just think that they should have known about this prior to the big announcement in London. I think as, if Jay were to be honest and look back, he, he would regret the timing, Rich. I think he owed it to the players first. There was a players meeting in Detroit when um, when this thing broke. If, if he had gone into the meeting and said, all right, I'm going to take all your cell phones away, put them away, I'm going to I'm going to talk to you confidentially off the record. Right. Here's what's down, and so it doesn't leak my players' text or a call. And, and then he walked out and then and made the, the press release. I think that would have uh, that would that should have been handled differently and better. Yeah. Well, we've heard from uh, now Tiger, who says that he was not given any updated information or prior to, but it really took a while for uh, the media or anyone to hear from Tiger uh, specifically about this proposed agreement. Were you surprised at that? Uh, a little bit, but Tiger's always been very um, private. And um, it, unlike McElroy, whom I really admire. I mean, yep, you have to. Face and the voice and, <laughs> and the reason of the PGA Tour. And uh, I, I think it has weighed heavily on him personally and on his game. But I can't tell you how much I admire the stance that he has taken on behalf of the PGA Tour. Yeah, I think it's affected his play as well. But do you think that they threw him under the bus, so to speak, Rory? Uh, I think he he should have been involved more, yeah. um, to your point, because of what I just mentioned. Uh, Tiger, too, because, you know, he's clearly the, the most um, recognizable athlete in the sport. Uh, what they were afraid of is a leak. And, you know, it can happen in, from the most reliable sources. So I understand that. I mean, they, they kept a very tight circle, uh, circle in this thing. You know, this, these discussions have been going on for months. And, right. Rich, nobody heard about it. So I credit them for keeping a tight lid on it. Yeah, they certainly have kept a uh, tight lid. Um, Monahan is back uh, after a brief. Uh, leave of absence, uh, do you think it was exhaustion or do you think there was clearly a medical reason or do you have any idea? Rich, I don't. You know, that's a private matter and yeah. that's for, for uh, Jay and his family. And I, I just hope that he's healthy. Um, he's been dealt a tough hand. Uh, it's, it's easy to second guess uh, actions that w without knowing all the details of the inner workings of it. And and I'm surely he's got the best interests of the tour at heart. Are we going to make mistakes? Yeah. But I think they're honest mistakes that they were made. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Steve, we've got to take a quick break. As you know, we have to take care of our sponsors. Uh, so we'll be back with uh, Steve Melnick, uh, former broadcaster, and talking to us about the live and the so-called agreement with the PGA Tour and DP Tour. We'll be right back after this on the Back Nine Boys podcast. This is John Wade, Director of Golf at Ocean Forest Golf Club, and you're listening to the Back Nine Boys Radio Golf Show. And welcome back. I'm Rich Stiles. We're on the phone with Steve Melnick, a former broadcaster and uh, unbelievably great uh, golfer. 
Steve, um, question. PGA Tour schedule after the Tour Championship is going to change as far as importance to those that are not in the top 70. Are you in favor of that, or what are your thoughts? Well, I'm mixed, Rich. Um, it, it almost gives those tournaments a, sort of a secondary status. And yeah. I don't want to see that. And uh, yet I, I know what they're trying to do for the players. So right now I'm totally ambivalent on that. I wish I know you'd like a, a, a better answer, but, but I'm mixed right now. Yeah, I am too, because it just seems like after the Tour Championship that some of the top players uh, will take a, a bigger break than they normally do um, and not play a lot of those, as you say, secondary events. You know, you've got to be realistic, too. Uh, as, as sports is the great content provider for television, in the fall, the NFL dominates totally dominates that content and and golf is really beating themselves uh, in the head trying to gain viewership against nfl and, and in college games on saturday so uh i know when i was with abc we did a lot of fall games and we we did them around football games that abc had at the time and, and we were we really struggled to get ratings so if you're looking for ratings if you're looking for a lot of folks at a golf tournament, I don't think that's going to happen in the fall. Yeah. I, uh, I kind of agree with you. Uh, unfortunately, you've still got sponsors out there that are paying millions of dollars to be sponsors of PGA Tour events that now are, as you said, secondary status and may not have top players. They will have people that are uh, struggling or trying to achieve to be in the top 125 to keep their tour cards. I mean, and I hate to say this, I don't want it to come out wrong, but it's almost like it would be a corn fairy event. Uh, hmm. Interesting point. Uh, as these guys, like corn fairy guys, are trying to make their way to tour, the fall events are trying to find a way to keep guys on the tour. Right. Are you surprised um, at the level of this young talent coming out of college? I mean, it just seems like, not only are they ready out of high school to take on the competition in college, but even more so to take on the competition on the various tours. Well, Rich, I still remain very close to amateur golf and college golf. I broadcast the SEC men's championship there um, at Sea Island every year. and um, I'm very involved still at the University of Florida. Program. And, by the way, I have to give this plug. We're national champions in golf this year. <laughs> Yes, on the on the eighteenth hole. The NCAA, yep, great talk. So yeah. uh, I do keep up with. But but to your point, players today are far more prepared competitively than in my era. Um, my son, my youngest son, who lives here on, on the St. Simons Butler, is a sports agent with Watcherman, and like he just signed Ludwig Aberg. Yeah, Ludwig's come out, and and you know it's like it's no big deal anymore. Yeah, come out on tour and. And you just shoot numbers, and, and you don't worry about you know, in what uh, format or form you're playing in. Uh, they're just good players now. Uh, he's got Butler's got Victor Hovland, who came out and had a great early run. He's become one of the top ten players in the world. But yep. they're prepared in college. Uh, they're, they're they know how to compete. They know how to manage a game, and most importantly, they know how to put a score on the board. Yeah, most important for that. And their uh, swing speeds are a little bit higher than uh, uh, mine, yours, and uh, Tom Watson's at 98.5. It's crazy.
crazy. It's a power game, let's face it. And uh, if, if you're not a power player, uh, you've got to find another way to be successful, and not everyone does. Yeah. All right, I want to jump back a little bit. With all of this going on with Live PGA Tour, DP, what do you think Mr. Palmer, um, Tom Watson, uh, some of the old greats, Bobby Jones, what do you think they would say about this proposed agreement between the two tiers? I think they would struggle uh, mightily. Yeah. I, I go back to 1968. Remember that the PGA, quote, tour was part of the PGA of America. And when they broke away, it was it was Arnold and Jack and Dan Sykes and Gardner Dickinson were the ones who sort of led to the, the separation of the tour uh, from the PGA. Uh, in terms of, you know, Asking Arnold now, I, I, you know, Arnold's dad was a golf professor, you know that. And, yeah. and Arnold, I mean, gosh, Arnold was the face of the game for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think he'd have a really, really hard time with this. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it just, it's, it's a shame. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the live format. Are you? No. Yeah. It's, it's silly golf. Yeah. Shotgun stars, 54 holes, no cut music blaring i'm too much of a traditionalist rich i just i I find that offensive yeah i think the only uh music that i think traditionalists would like to hear is a metronome so they can (laughs) test their swings you know (laughs) i've got you know honestly here's the way i look at it i have too much respect for the game and the traditions of the game to even try to understand and uh uh, figure out what they're trying to do. I just yeah. I find it fun. I got it. Game, so. Steve, it's always a pleasure. I can't thank you enough. Hope to see you on the range again. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Rich. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Steve Melnick, former broadcaster with ESPN ABC. Uh, just some great insights. And uh, hopefully you got some insights today. Listen to the Back Nine Boys on backnineboys.com, on the superstations.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to the Back Nine Boys Golf Show with Rich Stiles. Go to backnineboys.com for all things golf whenever you want it. We'll be back next week with an all-new Back Nine Boys at backnineboys.com.